Take your copy of the scriptures, find Jeremiah 36. There's also an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. The last 17 books in the Old Testament are all books that we call prophets. Some of them are minor prophets. Five of them are major prophets. And I've highlighted a couple of them up on this list. My guess is that if I gave you those 17 books and asked you on the spur of the moment, tell me which one of these books you know the most about, my guess is you would pick Jonah and Daniel. These last 17 books are mostly poetry and very little story. And they're really hard to read. They're hard to wade through. They say a lot of the same thing over and over and over again to make a point, to emphasize a point. But Jonah's a little bit different, and at least the first half of Daniel is a little bit different because it's not poetry. It's just a story, and we like stories, and stories stay with us in our minds and in our hearts. And so these books stand out to us, Daniel and Jonah. I would add Jeremiah to that list. Jeremiah is the longest of the prophets. In fact, word for word, I've told you it's the longest book in the Bible. It doesn't have as many chapters as the book of Psalms, but it has more words than the book of Psalms. There's a lot of poetry in Jeremiah. There's some stuff in Jeremiah that is a tough slog, and you just got to dig in, and you got to read, and you really got to think. There are also stories sprinkled throughout the book of Jeremiah. There are some remarkable stories in the book of Jeremiah. In our passage this morning, Jeremiah 36 is one of those stories. In Jeremiah 36, one of the challenges is the fact that there are a lot of characters in this chapter. There's a lot of people that if you're not familiar with the the late time of Judah's history as a nation. You may have no idea who these people are. And so on the front end, I just want to walk through some of these characters and set the stage so that we can understand the story that follows. So let's talk about some of these characters. First, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigned over Judah from 609 to 597 BC, and he intentionally, systematically, this is not a great technical term, but he undid all the religious reforms instituted by Josiah. Jehoiakim was a wicked, wicked man. He was a poor king. A few years earlier, Josiah had led a great revival and instituted all sorts of religious reforms in Judah. He was leading the people back to the worship of the one true God. When Jehoiakim took the throne, he undid all of that. And if you look at verse 1 in chapter 36, it says that this story begins in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's fourth year, coincidentally, was the first year of a man that you've probably heard of, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In his fourth year, there was this rising threat in Babylon represented by Nebuchadnezzar. So that's Jehoiakim. Next, Baruch. We read about Baruch just a moment ago. He was the son of Neriah. He was Jeremiah's friend. He was an educated scribe, and he was related, connected with the royal family. We met Baruch a couple of weeks ago when I was gone, and Ron preached Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32 actually happened after 36. You remember I've been telling you this is not a chronological book, and it can drive you crazy at times. Jeremiah 32 comes after 36 in the timeline, and in 32, 
Judah and Jerusalem are about to fall and Jeremiah is sent out to buy a field, a piece of real estate, right as the nation is about to be conquered and sent into exile. It's a fascinating story. Baruch was essentially the real estate agent that executed that transaction. He was an educated man. He was a scribe. He was a loyal friend to Jeremiah, and he plays a role in this story. When the Lord says to Jeremiah, write down these things, he enlists the help of Baruch. Jeremiah speaks, and Baruch writes down the words on a scroll. Next, Micaiah. Micaiah. He was the grandson of Shaphan. He was the son of Gemariah, and he had access to Jehoiakim's cabinet. And by cabinet, I don't mean cupboard. I mean his officials. Okay? I know this is getting in the weeds, but we're going to read about these guys, and I just want you to have some sense of who they are. Micaiah, the grandson of Shaphan. Who is Shaphan? Well, if you go all the way back to the days of Josiah, Josiah is this new king. He's a young king. A man named Hilkiah finds a copy of the law in the temple. And we remember Hilkiah. He found the law. He brought it to Josiah. But what we may forget, and I had forgotten until I started studying this week, is that Hilkiah actually took that copy of the law to Shaphan. And Shaphan was the one who went to Josiah and read the law. And when Josiah heard the law being read, that Hilkiah found that Shaphan read, his heart was broken and he tore his clothing and he repented of his sin and the sin of his nation and he led this great revival. Well, Shaphan had a son named Gemariah and Gemariah had a son named Micaiah and they're all sort of connected as people related to the king and his cabinet and all of these officials. All of these men are part of this story. One last person to know, Jehudi. Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, was tasked with reading the scroll to King Jehoiakim. Now, one quick time out. I hope you're very impressed with my pronunciation of all these names. And I hope you know that I have absolutely no idea if any of those are pronounced correctly according to the Jewish language. I have no idea. But when you read these names in the Old Testament, you don't, you don't stumble over them. You don't change it here and there. You just say it like you know it. And then everyone thinks, wow, that person is really smart. They know how to say all these difficult Bible names. So you just read them with confidence, okay? Here's the big idea, and I do say this with confidence. The big idea of this story is that the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. Let me tell you a story from Roman history. About the years 284 to 305, the Roman emperor was a man named Diocletian. And in February of the year 303 A.D., Diocletian passed a law or signed a law into existence that was designed to exterminate Christianity in the Roman Empire. This law that he passed in February of 303 said church buildings were to be torn down, copies of the scripture were to be burned, pastors were to be imprisoned, and Christians were not allowed to meet together for worship. When many of these pastors were hauled into prison, they were given a choice. The choice was pretty simple. You can stand by your convictions as a Christian and we'll keep you in prison, or you can take a tiny pinch of incense and you can burn it in the fire and you can say, Caesar is Lord, 
and we'll let you go. That's all we ask. You have a choice. Is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? And you can imagine the manipulation that took place in these prison cells. Your church members aren't here. No one will know about it. This just stays between us. You seem like a nice guy. We don't really want to keep you here. One small pinch and we'll let you go. There were so many pastors, bishops arrested in parts of the empire that they had to release criminals to make room for them in Roman prisons. Now, to be very fair, this sounds very, very dire. It was very dire in parts of the empire, and in other parts of the empire, the local leaders said, we're not going to enforce that. We're not going to do that. There was parts of the empire where maybe like the state of Texas, they said, absolutely not. We would never do something like that. But then over in California, they said, absolutely, lock all the pastors up. You get the idea. That was going on in the Roman Empire. So there was parts where it was not a huge deal, but there was parts where it really was a big deal. And eventually, the choice that the pastors had to face came home to the Christians. And at points in this period of time, under the reign of Diocletian, Christians faced a choice. We will execute you. If you continue to persist in your faith in Jesus and you will only say that Jesus is Lord or you can burn a pinch of incense and you can confess, say out loud, Caesar is Lord and everybody just moves on with life. It's a difficult time for the church. It's a difficult time to be a pastor. It's a difficult time to be a Christian. It's a reminder that there have been times throughout history in different parts of the world where it has not always been easy to follow God. That's true in our day in some respects and increasing ways in certain places. It was also true in Jeremiah's day. And this story reminds us that the people of God and the word of God have faced great opposition in difficult times throughout church history. Now, what I want to do is walk through this story. I just want to make sure you understand what's happening in the story, and then we'll think about how it applies to our lives. So we'll start with this. Jeremiah and Baruch wrote a scroll. The Lord told them to do this, so they teamed up. They wrote a scroll. Jeremiah sent Baruch to read the scroll in the temple. This is Jeremiah 36, 1 to 10. It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, and he says, I want you to write down all the things that I've told you since I started talking to you. At this point in Jeremiah's life, it's been about 20 years. So that's a daunting task. He's been walking with the Lord for 20 years, and God says, I just want you to write down all the specific things that I've said to you. We read these things in Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And he's tasked to write all these things down. And so he gets his friend, Baruch. Jeremiah talks. Baruch writes it down. And he writes it down on a scroll. This writing process probably takes about six to nine months because we pick up in the fourth year of Jehoiakim and later we read it's the fifth year of Jehoiakim and what they wrote on looked something like this. I know you know what a scroll looks like, but that's what a scroll looks like. It's about 10 inches tall, typically in ancient Israel. It's about 30 feet long. And it's rolled up on two wooden spindles. And it's kind of like driving in Kenya. They all drive on the wrong side of the road. The Hebrews read from the wrong side of the page to the other side of the page. And so you start on the right and you work your way 
to the left. Most Bible scholars think that what Jeremiah and Baruch wrote on this scroll was roughly what we have in Jeremiah chapter 1 to 25. It's basically that part of the book was what was included in this scroll. And so they write it down. Look at verse 5. We didn't read this earlier. Verse 5 says, Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I'm banned from going to the house of the Lord. He had a wanted poster up on the, the wall of the temple. Don't let this man in. So Jeremiah says, look, I'm going to dictate the thing. You're going to write it down, and then you're going to go to the temple. These men were not afraid. You are going to go to the temple where they won't allow me to go, and you're going to read it. This is where I'm telling you that Baruch was a loyal friend. When your buddy is banned from the temple... And he says, ah, too bad, I can't go. You're going to go for me. He knows what the cost could be. Jeremiah sends him to read this scroll in the temple. The text says that he came on a feast day, a feast day. There's a little bit of debate about this, but what seems to be a, a, a feast day or a fasting day is the Jews, when they were in trouble, they would call one of these days and they would pray and they would seek the Lord's favor. And it wasn't genuine repentance. It was basically, hey, we need some help. We kind of made a mess of things, and we need you to come bail us out. And more than likely, they're looking to Babylon, and they know that Nebuchadnezzar is on the rise, and they're saying, this could be a problem. Maybe we ought to do something nice for Yahweh, throw him a bone, so to speak, and maybe he'll help us out. So that's the first part of the story. Here's the second part of the story. Micaiah and Jehudi asked Baruch to read the scroll to Jehoiakim's cabinet. This is verse 11 to 19. This is part of what we didn't read. There's just a lot of back and forth. Baruch goes and he reads the scroll in the temple. And some of these officials hear it. And they say, hey, the cabinet needs to hear what Baruch is reading and what Jeremiah has written. And so if you look in the text, look at verse 12. Here's all of these names. We read about Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And all these guys get together and they have sort of a private reading. This is the second reading of this scroll. And there's a very important detail in the text. If you will look with me at verse 16, it says that when they heard all the words... They turned to one another in fear. In fear. You know, when King Josiah heard the word of the Lord read to him, he feared and he tore his clothing and he repented. And these men, these officials, they hear the word of the Lord read to them and collectively as a group, they fear. They know that what Jeremiah has spoken means trouble for Judah. Look at verse 19. The officials said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. They know the king needs to hear this scroll, but they also know the king. And they know that when the king hears the scroll, he's going to say, bring me Baruch and bring me Jeremiah. And so they say to these guys, you better go hide out because this is going to get worse before it gets better. But they know that the king needs to hear this warning. Why? Verse 3, maybe they will turn from their evil ways and the Lord will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So they plan to take the scroll 
to the king. That's where Jehudi comes in. Jehudi is called to read the scroll to the king, and while he's reading it, Jehoiakim burns the scroll. Verse 22 says it was the ninth month. That means it's late November, early December. It's one of the colder months in Judah. And the king has a special apartment built for the cold months, an apartment built or a house built to keep himself warm. And in that house, he has a fire going. And Jehudi comes in with the scroll. It's on two rollers. It's about 30 feet long, more than, more than likely. And he begins to read it. He starts with his right hand, and as he's rolling to his left hand, the king stops him, and he cuts off a section, and he throws it in the fire. Keep reading. So he pulls another section from his right hand, and as he's getting ready to roll it onto the left roller, the king stops him, and he cuts it off, and he throws it into the fire. And in the mind of Jehoiakim, this third reading of the word of God would be the last. He wants to hear it. He wants to know what Baruch and Jeremiah have to say. But he is intentionally setting out to destroy what God has said to his people. If you know the story of Josiah, the author here wants you, Jeremiah wants you to notice a contrast. When King Josiah, Hilkiah finds the law, Shaphan comes to read it, Josiah hears it. When Josiah hears the word of God read to him, he tears his clothing and he repents. When King Jehoiakim hears the word of God read to him, he cuts it. It's the same word in Hebrew. He tears it. He tears it with a knife. He doesn't tear his clothing and repent, but he tears the word of God off in pieces and he tries to destroy it in a fire. You are to see the contrast as you read this story. A previous king humbled himself when the word of God suddenly invaded his presence unexpectedly. Not Jehoiakim. He's stubborn and he's arrogant and he tries to destroy the word of God. Why did he cut it and tear it off and throw it away? Maybe he was a, an animist at heart, and maybe he thought if we burn these words, we'll destroy the power of these words, and these words won't come to pass. Maybe he was just a clown, like a 10th grade guy in the locker room trying to impress his buddies, trying to act macho and tough, and I'm not scared, and I won't repent, and I won't listen. We don't know, but he sets out to destroy the word of God. Brings us to the last part of the story. We read this. The Lord told Jeremiah to create another scroll, and he promised judgment for Jehoiakim. This is verse 27 to 32. There's another interesting play on words if you look at verse 29. Verse 29, thus says the Lord, you burned the scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cut off from it man and beast? That was the question of the king. Why would you write this in a scroll? Why would you write in a scroll that the king of Babylon would come and destroy us and cut us off? So what does the king do to the scroll? He destroys it and he cuts it into pieces bits by bit by bit. He says, the Lord says to Jehoiakim, you will have no one to sit on the throne of David. That's verse 30. He will not have a son to sit on the throne of David. 
If you fast forward in history, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, sat on the throne for a whopping three months. And then his family line was cut off. In the end, God says, write another scroll. And there's a bit of humor at the end of it. He wrote all the words of the first scroll. And at the end of verse 32, they added words. Many similar words were added to that second scroll. So that's the story. What do we do with this story? How does it apply to our lives thousands of years later? First, let me say this. The Word of God, and specifically here we're talking about the Scriptures, the Word of God is inspired by God. We just spent Wednesday nights talking about this over and over and over and over again. We talked about the doctrine of Scripture. It all rests, the doctrine of Scripture rests on the inspiration of God's word. And this is a fascinating story because you see it play out in real time. Scripture being created. Uh, if you look in the text at verse 10 and verse 18, the words of the scroll are described as Jeremiah's words. They're Jeremiah's words. He really told Baruch what to write down. They came from Jeremiah, they were his. But if you look at verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 11, the words of the scroll are called God's words. That's the doctrine of inspiration. It's what you find in 2 Peter 1.21. Peter explains it like this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah spoke. He opened his mouth and he said words. But in that process, he is carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And what Baruch wrote down wasn't only Jeremiah's words. They were his words. They were also God's words. It's inspiration. It's the dual authorship of Scripture. It's written by Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the other prophets and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter. It's written by all of these men. Men spoke. But the Holy Spirit carried them along in such a way that the words that they spoke, the words that they wrote, are God's words. What a privilege to hold in your hand a book. A book written by someone like Jeremiah, who some 2,500 years ago, a wicked king tried to literally burn the book out of existence. And here we are on the other side of the world, in Odessa, Texas, reading the words of Jeremiah. What a remarkable thought. The king didn't destroy it. We get to read Jeremiah's words. But more importantly, what a privilege to read God's word. It's inspired by God Almighty. People all over the world want to hear from God. They want to have God speak to them, have God tell them something, have God answer their questions and he has. He's spoken to us. The scriptures are inspired by God. Secondly, the word of God calls people to repentance. To repentance. I want to read verse 3 again. God says to Jeremiah, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and I that I may forgive the iniquity of their sin. This turning from iniquity is what the Bible calls repentance. That's what God wanted from his people. He wanted them to repent. Stop worshiping 
the gods of the nations, turn and worship the one true God. He wanted them to repent. Now, for some 20, 30, 40, 50, I don't know how many years, experts have been telling people like me that you shouldn't use the word repent or repentance in a room like this. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not going to be uplifting or encouraging. It's just going to be negative. And, well, why is he so angry? Why is he telling me how terrible I am? And people have said, you just shouldn't use that word. It's a, it's a word with a negative connotation. It's a word that just makes God sound angry and cranky. But it's a word that if you cut out of your vocabulary, like the king cut this scroll to pieces, you cut the gospel out of your vocabulary. Look at Jesus, Mark 1. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus didn't listen to the gurus that said you shouldn't use that word. He said, here's the gospel, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Look at Peter, the very first Christian sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost. They heard Peter preach. They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is the call on your life today. It's a key reason why we gather together in this room on Sunday mornings, why I preach to you the word of God, why you go to Sunday school classes, and hopefully in your Sunday school class you open the inspired word of God and you listen to what it says. It's why on Wednesday nights we teach our kids Bible verses at Awana, Verses, verses, verses over and over and over and over again. It's why we take mission trips to Kenya to train pastors and to share the gospel with the people that we come in contact with. It's because we want people to repent, to turn, to leave their sin behind and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance isn't about you cleaning your life up to earn your way with Almighty God and to be good enough for him. Repentance is the response of somebody who understands that Almighty God is holy, 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 and I am none of those holy. None of them. We're sinful people. That's what God wanted these people to realize. You're chasing after all these idols. I am the only true God. And I want you to turn from your iniquity. And I want you to leave those false gods behind. And I want you to worship me alone. It's what Jesus proclaimed. I have good news. I have gospel. Repent and believe because the kingdom has come. Why do we want people to repent? Verse 3. We want them to have the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of their iniquities. We want them to turn from their evil ways that God might forgive them, that he might give them life. It's what we want for you. It's what we want for your children. It's what we want for the people who listen online. We want people to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, and we want their sins to be forgiven. Some of you 
need to stop playing around with church. You need to stop playing around with what I filled in, all the blanks on the sermon outline. But I dropped my offering envelope in the box on the way in. I haven't missed Sunday school in a month, four out of four. And you just need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and you need to believe the good news about Jesus Christ. Number three, the word of God has always faced opposition. I think as Americans, we need this reminder. We've lived in a place and a time that is somewhat unique in the history of the world, and it's good for us to remember as the word of God is increasingly opposed by our culture, that this is nothing new. It's nothing unusual. The word of God has always faced opposition. In fact, 2,400 years ago, the sitting king of Judah literally tried to burn a book of the Bible out of existence. Can you imagine the thought? It's God's chosen nation. It's the remnant of God's chosen nation. Wicked Israel has long gone into exile, but this is faithful Judah, and the sitting king of Judah is literally trying to burn the Bible into oblivion. People oppose the word of God in part because it calls them to repent. It's nothing new. It happens today. People today try to oppose the word of God sometimes through laws and legislation that directly contradicts the scriptures. People oppose the word of God today sometimes by worldviews and philosophies and isms that teach things that are contrary to what the Bible says. People oppose the word of God today. I've seen this multiple times this week by simply elevating their own opinions about spiritual matters over the authority of God's word. Well, I think people oppose the word of God today by picking and choosing what they want to believe in the Bible and saying, well, that makes me a bit uncomfortable. People oppose the word of God today by coming and sitting in rooms just like this one on Sunday mornings and leaving unrepentant. People oppose the word of God. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. One last thought. The word of God can never be destroyed. Never, never, never. When I was a student at Southern Seminary, I had a classmate He was from Korea. English was his second language. He was writing a PhD dissertation uh, in English. It was a difficult task for him. His apartment flooded when he was about three-fourths through with his dissertation. His laptop was completely destroyed, and he lost months and months and months of work. And I remember him coming to class openly weeping about what had been lost. And I remember thinking, I'm going to back up my dissertation every five minutes. That looks terrible. Just watching him and the brokenness and the hopelessness and the despair. What about the Lord as this scroll? He told Jeremiah, write the scroll. They wrote it. How does the Lord feel about these things? Verse 28, take another scroll. Just get another one, blank. Get your big chief tablet, 
Get your spiral notebook. Get your loose leaf paper. Get whatever you got to get. Get another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll. God, how am I going to remember all those, all those words? Well, they weren't your words. They were my words spoken through you. So don't worry about it. We're just going to rewrite the whole thing. Get another scroll. Rewrite all the words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Verse 32, Jeremiah took another scroll. He gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah. He wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. God wasn't the least bit worried. God's word will never be destroyed. Look at what we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 25. I'll put it up on the screen for you. 1 Peter 1, all flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword, including, uh, including the little knife that Jehoiakim used to chop the scroll into pieces and to throw it into fire. The word of God is sharper than that, like a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You can't burn it out of existence. It's living and it's active. It's not like the grass in Odessa that looks really nice this summer, but you know next summer. It's not going to look nice. That's grass. It's not the word of God. The word of God endures forever. Emperor Diocletian could not destroy the church or the word of God. He tried. It didn't really work in his own lifetime. And as a bit of funny humor, uh, historical trivia, when he died, he had this building built, a mausoleum, uh, to bury him in. It's in what we call Croatia today. You can visit it today. It's still standing. And about 500 years after they buried Diocletian in it, they converted it to a church. (laughs) There was another man, a French philosopher named Voltaire. Before he died, Voltaire said this, 100 years uh, from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. He really believed that the philosophy that he taught would just completely unravel people's confidence in the Bible. Did you know that 100 years after the death of Voltaire, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and printed Bibles in Voltaire's house? You can't destroy the word of God. The great reformer Theodore Beza is right when he said this, the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. The word of the Lord endures. It's inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It calls you to repentance today, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is opposed by people throughout history, and we should expect nothing less in our day. But we shouldn't be chicken little crying that the sky is falling because we have confidence that it is living and that it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is not like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. The word of the Lord endures forever.